Lord Jesus, uh, we have sang so many times that we invite you in. We have sang so many times that we will focus on you despite circumstances. Uh, Lord, now is the time that we need to put it into action. Uh, may we hear from you this morning as we look at your word, uh, as, as we learn what it is to kind of study your word. Would you be glorified? Uh, would you speak to each of us where we are this morning? You know what we're coming through. You know what we're walking into even better than we do. Lord, would you minister to our hearts? Would you bring hope and encouragement to those who need it? Lord, would you bring conviction to those who need it? May we be different because you have met with us in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're starting a new uh, series this week. We're going to be going through the book of Mark. Uh, now, the, what this morning is going to be is just kind of an intro into the book of Mark, uh, because so often we tend to just kind of like dive into a book uh, and just start reading it almost as if it was written to people in the 21st century living in America. And when we do that, we miss a lot of what the scriptures have to say. You see, the point of coming to Scripture isn't necessarily to, to take what somebody wrote and go, how do I apply it to my life? That is, a, that is a big piece of it. Please don't misunderstand that. But what we need to learn to do is to go, what did the original author mean to the original audience? Like all of these books were written with specific people in mind, with specific churches or cities in mind, in specific situations. And the more we can learn to understand that, the more we can then rightly apply it to our lives. Does that make sense? There, there's so many things we're dealing with now that the biblical authors couldn't even have dreamed of. God knew, and there's ways to apply it, but they weren't writing to us right now. And there's a lot of misinterpretations that can come from assuming that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Mark and we're going to ask some background questions. What we're going to do here with Mark honestly should be applied anytime uh, we come to a book of the Bible. We're going to read it. We're going to study it. We need to learn to ask some questions of it. And I'm not talking about super deep philosophical questions. I'm talking about who, what, when, where, why, how. Basic questions to try to gain some background. And listen, hear me very clearly. I am no theologian. I asked a great theologian, Google. That's where I got a lot of these answers. Some of them you get through reading through the book and you kind of pick up on some things. But listen, I always start and I just, we're looking at the book of Mark and I Googled, who wrote Mark? It's that simple. Now, here's the thing. Anytime you put some of that into Google, what you're going to find is there's different opinions whether who wrote it, we're going to ask when was it written, uh, who was it written to. You're going to find some different opinions, but you'll see consensus with these. There will be some that are kind of brand new ideas. Be very hesitant of those. The ones that, that are kind of tried and true is you'll find ones that go, look, the, the early church, here's what they thought. This is part of, you'll read words like church tradition teaches that this is who wrote this book, this is who it was written to. Those are the safest bets. And you're going to find that's where most agreement lies. So I, I don't want to make it sound super simple. You just Google it and one answer comes up, that's the truth. You got to kind of read through some of them and see which one makes the most sense to you, which we rely on the discernment of the Holy Spirit in that. But what we're going to look at today when we come to the book of Mark is the, the historical answers, the answers that the church has believed for a long time. 
Some people, I think, just want, kind of want to get their name in the paper, and so they go, I have a new idea who wrote that. Eh, I'm real hesitant about those. What have those who came before me believed about this? That's where we're going to land uh, in the answers with these today. So as we come to the book of Mark, the book of Mark has been overlooked a lot uh, in church history because the book of Mark is the shortest gospel. And some people, especially in American culture, bigger is better, right? You guys have heard of Texas, right? And so the longer gospels, obviously the better ones. And so Mark has been kind of skipped over a lot. Mark is the most action-packed version of Jesus' life that we have. We have four Gospels, in case you didn't know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different tellings of the life of Jesus. And the book of Mark has the least amount of Jesus' teachings. What, they, what Mark really focuses on is what Jesus did, how Jesus lived, how Jesus responded the miracles and works of Jesus, those are pushed to the front and center. Someone once said this about the author of Mark. He said, the author of Mark was a storyteller, not a theologian. He, he wasn't out to go, man, they have to get all of this doctrine. Now, hear, hear me. There is a ton of doctrine in Mark. There's a ton of theology there. But Mark wasn't going because they have to understand all the teaching. He wanted to go, look at how Jesus lived. Look at how Jesus responded to people. That informs our theology, our doctrine. Does that make sense? But it's been overlooked a lot because it doesn't have all the quotable teachings of Jesus. And so Matthew, John, Luke, they get a lot of the, the limelight. So we're going we're gonna to focus on Mark because as we look right now, uh, in kind of an uncertain time, certainly in our nation's history, but in the world all around us, I don't know that we just need more teaching right now. I think what we need is to look at the life of Jesus. How did Jesus respond to uncertainty? How did Jesus respond to those around him dealing with uncertainty? What did he do? And how do we begin to live the same way? Again, there will be teaching in here. There's plenty of that. But as Mark focuses on the action, what did he do? Not how did he answer the question I think a lot of us, that's the kind of way we need to pivot. Does that make sense, church? Okay. So coming in to the book of Mark, starting to ask some of those questions. First is this. Who wrote the book of Mark? You guys ready for this? A guy named Mark. Super tricky. Okay, a guy named John Mark. You can read about him throughout the book of Acts. Paul mentions him in some of his letters. Peter mentions him uh, in the book of 1 Peter. A guy named John Mark. John Mark was the cousin of a guy named Barnabas. Again, you read through Acts. Barnabas is the guy that kind of brought Paul under his wing and introduced him to the church when everyone else was going, we know Paul. No way are we letting that guy through the door. Barnabas was the first one to kind of bring him in and go, trust me, that God is moving in this man. John Mark is Barnabas' cousin, and he was a traveling companion with Barnabas, Paul, and Peter. Every time you, you read through, again, the book of Acts, he's kind of peppered through there. Every time you read his name, he's never front and center. He's always a traveling companion. He's always a helper. When Paul or Peter referred to him, he's, they referred to him as a fellow worker, someone who's a great help to their ministry. He's kind of a behind-the-scenes guy just helping to push those guys in their ministry forward. So how was Mark written? Our next question. Because you have to understand this. How did Mark even get into the Bible? 
Like, how did his letter get into the Bible? Because here's the thing. There's something called a cannon. Now, I don't mean cannon, the thing you light the gunpowder, shoot the big heavy ball. A, a cannon means standard. And there's a certain standard that books of the Bible had to kind of like live up to before they could be called the Bible. There was a whole bunch of stuff written around that time by really good people that had really good stuff in it, but it wasn't put on the level of scripture until it passed through a canon. One of those canons was that whoever was writing had to be an eyewitness. Like if you're going to write about the life of Jesus, you had to be an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. Now here's a problem. John Mark wasn't a follower of Jesus that we know of. He certainly wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Whether he was in the larger crowd, we don't know. And so how did John Mark make it into the Bible? See, you have Matthew, who was a tax collector, who Jesus called to follow him, and he saw his ministry from the front row. Matthew's account, we go, check, it fits, no problem, it makes sense, he was there. John's account, same thing. John walked with Jesus all the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. He gets to write an account. We'll believe it. No problem. Luke. Luke was not an eyewitness, but Luke starts his letter going, I've gone and I've talked to every eyewitness I could find, and I've just kind of compiled what they said. So Luke kind of makes it in by going, I just interviewed a whole bunch of eyewitnesses. Luke makes it into the Bible. How does John Mark? Here's what is believed about John Mark. Mark's gospel is actually Peter's account. Uh, John Mark, again, a traveling companion, a helpmate to all of these men. Mark actually wrote down Peter's account of Jesus' life. At the end of Jesus' life, Mark was with Peter. Or excuse me, at the end of Peter's life, not Jesus. Mark was with Peter, and it's believed that Mark wrote down Peter's account. This is found from ancient historians who have written about it, and they just flat out said, Mark collected all of Jesus, or Peter's stories, excuse me, all of Peter's stories about Jesus and put them down on paper. So Mark's account is actually Peter's account. You're going to hear me a lot as we go throughout this. I'm going to be going, here's what Peter wanted to say. Here's what Peter was trying to communicate. And it's because Mark was kind of just a scribe and an editor. Peter just told Mark the story, and Mark wrote it down. Here's the thing. Peter most likely was illiterate. That is a hard thing for us to grasp in our American culture because kids learn to read at three, four years old. They learn to write so young. But back then, it was a very privileged thing. It was expensive to learn to read and write. It took an incredible amount of time to learn to read and write back then. Peter, as a fisherman growing up, was most likely illiterate. The vast majority of people in Palestine were illiterate. We have this in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John get in trouble with the Sanhedrin, which is like the, the leading council of Israel. And they defend themselves in such a way that the Sanhedrin kind of steps back and, and takes notice. They say, whoa, here's their response. When they observe the boldness of Peter and John, they realize that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. They looked at them and they went, who are these guys and how are they this bold? They're completely uneducated. They should barely be able to string words together. That's how they would have viewed them at the time. Another version says that they were common, ordinary men. That's how they were viewed. Probably couldn't even read or write. Yet they lived with this boldness that caused people to step back and go, we need to make note, these guys have been with Jesus and they're different because of it. 
as you read through the book of Mark and as we look at it, it kind of has Peter's flair. I said before that Mark is the most action-packed gospel account that we have. It's also the shortest and most to the point because when you read about the life of Jesus, or man, I'm going to keep doing that today. When you read about the life of Peter, try to stick with me. Uh, Peter is action-packed. Peter is to the point. Peter is constantly sticking his foot in his mouth because Peter moves before Peter thinks. But with that comes an incredible blessing. Who's the first man to ever walk on water? You can answer. Jesus would be the right answer. See? It's tricky. Is it Peter or Jesus? I'm stumbling all day. Jesus was the first man. Who is the second and only to follow him? Peter. While all the other boys are sitting on the boat going, who is that? What is happening right now? Peter's already got one leg out. Just tell me to come, Jesus. And And he walks on water because Peter was about movement and action. He was not known for overthinking. You find time and time again, Peter just, whenever he didn't know what to do, he just moved. And so you see him all throughout Mark's account of the gospel. Because he almost like, oh, and then there was this. Oh, and then there was that. And then there was this. Some of Mark is out of order compared to some of the other gospels. And that screams Peter to me. Because again, he wasn't a theologian going, how do I formulate this wonderful account? He was a fisherman who goes, man, and then he did this. And then he did, oh, and wait, before he did that. And they didn't have copy and paste like we do. So it just kind of came in this jumbled fashion that screams Peter. So when was Mark written? Mark was written, most believe, in the mid-60s. And I don't mean 1960s. 60s AD. Between 60 and 65 AD is what most people believe. And we're going to talk about why that's important here in a minute. But for now, just kind of lock that away. Written in the mid-60s, many people believe that Mark was actually the first gospel account that Mark wrote his gospel account, again, Peter's story, and then Matthew and Luke actually kind of copied some of it and went, oh, that's a good one, I can't forget that story. And they mimicked some of the style, some of the stories that are in Mark's writing. Some believe that that's not the case, not truly important. But around the mid-60s, so about 30, 35 years after Jesus' resurrection. We'll talk about why that's important here in a minute. Where was Mark written? Mark was written while Peter was in Rome. Peter and Mark in the mid-60s were in Rome, which has a huge bearing on things. Who was it written to? Mainly to the church in Rome. Now, they understood, and you even find references uh, in Peter and Paul's writing, where they understood all these things get passed around. I may write it with this church in mind or with this person in mind, but it's going to get copied and passed around to the rest of the church. That was really common. And they actually talk about that. Hey, as you read this letter from Peter, uh, make sure that this one's copied and and sent over to those guys too. Like it was a common thing. But mainly it was written with the church in Rome in focus. Now, why is any of that important? When it was written, where it was written, who it was written to, who wrote it? Why is any of that important? Because if we're going to answer the question, why was Mark written? We have to know the answer to those questions. Mark was written because you had a guy named Peter who was nearing the end of his life and he was thinking, people have to hear my friend's story. People have to hear the story of Jesus. 
Because again, Jesus had, had been resurrected and left the earth 30, 35 years before. The average life expectancy during this time in history was not that much. Many of the eyewitnesses had died or were getting older, didn't know how long the eyewitnesses were going to be there. And this was an oral culture. Things were passed down through stories. And Peter knew if we're not careful, we're going to lose the story of Jesus. And all we're going to have is a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. It's going to move back towards a religion just like any other. People have to remember my friend Jesus' story. Because remember, for Peter, Jesus wasn't just some guy that he had heard about who he was told was really good and really powerful. He walked with him. He saw him. He saw the look on his face when things happened. He saw the look on his face when Peter betrayed him. He saw the look on his face when Jesus restored Peter. They were friends. And he knew people need to know Jesus' story. If the church is going to survive, we can't lose the story of Jesus. The Gospels, which we have at the very beginning of our New Testament, were actually, for the most part, the last books written. Because as the church got older, as the eyewitnesses were beginning to die, they said, we have to get this down so that people don't miss it. It's about Jesus, not about the rules, the do's and the don'ts. It's about walking with him and becoming like him. We can't let people miss it. Because here's what was happening in the mid-60s. There was this bad dude named Nero. Nero is one of the like, most monstrous kings that Rome had ever had. Murdered his own mother. Murdered his brother, who was a threat to his throne. Exiled and murdered his wife so he could marry somebody else. He was a nasty, nasty dude. And Nero found something real convenient in Christians. A scapegoat. I can blame anything and everything I want on Christians and people will buy it. It's not raining when it should be. Well, it's the Christians. They're not worshiping our gods. And so our gods are mad at us. Blame it on the Christians. It's raining too much when it shouldn't be. It's those darned Christians. They refuse to worship our gods. There's a story that Nero actually started a fire to burn down half of Rome, basically to clear out some real estate so that he could build what he called his golden palace. And who did he blame the fire on? Christians. Things were getting really, really heated at this time. And so there's a reason that Peter was in Rome in the mid-60s, and he wasn't vacationing. He was prisoner. He was awaiting what he knew to be his death. And Nero came up with some really gross, creative ways to kill Christians. I'm not going to get into those. It's upsetting how evil this dude was. And so we have Peter sitting in a jail cell, waiting for the executioner. Don't know if he's coming today, next month, next year. But Mark, we got to get these things down. Mark, get out a pen. Write these things down for me. People have to know the story because I don't know how much longer I have. Peter knew the executioner was coming. And Peter also knew for the church in Rome, things were about to get real hot. They were in the epicenter of all of this. Rome basically owned the whole world at the time. But especially in the city of Rome, the persecution was getting hot and was only going to get hotter. And Peter knew, if my people are going to make it through this, they need to remember the story of Jesus. This was persecution prep. Things are going to get hot, and if all you have is a list of rules, 
you're sunk. They need to remember the story of my friend Jesus if they're ever going to make it through this. Mark, write this down for me. So what is Mark, or rather Peter's, message? In this great time of turmoil, people needed to remember who Jesus is, not was, is. If people were going to make it through, listen, persecution, execution, they had to know who Jesus is. So here's how Peter starts his gospel. This is Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Or in the ESV it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now listen, as we go through this, I'm going to be using different translations. Because some of them kind of capture it a little differently than others do. Side note for a second, I have people ask me all the time, like, so what's the best translation? What, what's the, what are the good translations and what are the bad translations? There are some that are just not good translations because people intentionally set out to kind of twist scripture to say what they wanted to. For the most part, what you have is a group of people who speak English, who are trying to take a dead language, ancient Greek, and bring it back to life. And so sometimes you see here, versus the NIV, versus the ESV, one says good news, one says gospel. They're synonymous. One says Christ, one says the Messiah. They're synonymous. So we're going to look at some different ones because sometimes one captures it a little better than the other. And it's not that like this version's always best and this version's always worst. That's a dumb argument. We're not going to get caught up in it. Do I go here? I'm going to go here. Uh, I've been studying Peter all week, so let's just go. Anyone who tells you on Facebook, King James is the only version out there. If you're not reading the King James, you're not reading the Bible. Ignore it. I don't care what they say. I don't care. Well, ours has this and yours is missing that. Was it added? Was it taken away? I don't care. Because here's what we truly believe. It is not the ink on this paper that will transform our lives. Amen? It is the Holy Spirit who speaks to us through the word. And can he overcome this word versus that word? Amen. Yes. So please don't get caught up in that. I've, I've seen people derailed by it. I've had people even in the past few weeks come up and go, somebody on Facebook told me I wasn't reading the Bible because it wasn't King James. Oh, no. And they're like literally panicked because they love that person. They trust that person. I don't even know if I can say it's well-meaning, but it's dangerous. We believe that the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Word of God, and He can do it through the NIV, the ESV, the Holman Christian, the New Living. The Let's not get caught up in that. It's a fool's errand. So we're going to be looking at different translations. But back to my original point. Here is how Peter starts his gospel. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. From the get-go, he says, you need to remember who it is we're talking about. The good news, let's, let's break some of these words down. Good news or gospel, same word, translated two different ways. In the Greek, you guys ready for this? Euangelion, right, fun word. We all use that all the time, right? We get from this word evangelical, evangelize. You guys ready for another little rabbit trail? Peter takes this one later on, so we'll come back to it again. We have got to reclaim this word. Evangelical was never meant to be a political stance. It was never meant to be a marketing demographic or a, a voting position. 
Evangelical meant those that bring the good news. Those that bring light where there's darkness. The world knows evangelicalism for what it's against, for what it hates. We have to reclaim this. To be an evangelical from the very beginning meant those that bring good news. Jesus said, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. Most people, when they see an evangelical coming, don't go, ooh, here comes some good news. They're probably going to be full of hope and joy and peace. It's, oh no, what are they against now? What is it they hate now? Who is their enemy now? What we find in Scripture, and again, we're going to talk about this. Jesus goes... Who you are in Christ should never be wrapped up in earthly kingdoms. That is a mistake, and it will lead you astray every time. You are to be the good news bringer to those around you. And at times, that means you got to sit politics down. You have to sit your views of right and wrong down and love people enough to bring them the good news. The gospel doesn't feel like good news in our world today. Mostly because we've turned it into a way to beat people over the head. Instead of going, there is a God who loves you so much, he paid the ultimate price for you so that you could come into his family. I don't care who you are, I don't care what you believe, that should be the best news. But most people, when they hear gospel, don't think good news. And Christians, that's on us. We have to reclaim this. Like Peter says, this is the beginning, the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah, or it's also uh, Christ. Some people think Jesus' name was actually Jesus Christ. Like, like, oh, it's nice to meet you. I'm Jesus H. Christ. No, Christ was actually a title given to him. You won't read it actually a lot of times in the uh, Gospels because he was just Jesus of Nazareth. He was just Jesus, the Christ. The Messiah. That word literally means the anointed one, the one sent by God. Now, here's a reason I think Peter was writing this down. When people heard Messiah, it was an incredibly loaded word. For centuries, people had been saying, here's what the Messiah is going to do. The Messiah is going to come in literally riding on a war horse and kick Rome out. The Messiah is going to come in and he's going to lead us to political victory. The Messiah is going to come in and he's going to make us the nation of all nations is what Israel had been taught and they were missing it. So Peter, I think in writing this is going, people need to understand who my friend Jesus is. When we say Jesus the Christ, we need to untangle some of the the beliefs that people have tied in with this. We need to get back to Jesus, the anointed one, the one sent not only to pay the price for our sins, but to bring the kingdom of God onto earth, because now we have that same mission. He was the Messiah, the Son of God. This was a massive claim. This is something that we far too often have just kind of gotten used to. Oh, Jesus, the Son of God. Oh, the Christmas story. I love that. Babe in a manger. Here's what happened when Jesus actually admitted to being the Son of God. Matthew 26, this is Jesus during Jesus' trial uh, with, it was a kangaroo court, the high priest and his boys, basically a mob. Matthew 26, 63, then the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Jesus was not answering their questions and they didn't like that. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said he had spoken blasphemy. And from this point on, Jesus was a dead man walking. To say you were the son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, was to put yourself on a level of God. Now, Jesus said it, and I believe it, but to the world, this is one of those, whoa, what? Like, God come to earth? Like, wait, what? But for us as believers, we cannot lose this. The Messiah, the Son of God, if we lose sight of who he is, we lose sight of who we are especially in the midst of dark times, of uncertain times. Listen, we may not have a Nero out there waiting to set the dogs on us, but we have uncertainty like school. What does that even look like? And safety and just going to Walmart. And oh my goodness, it's an it's a, uh, election year. And there's all of this uncertainty that can begin to weigh and to crush. And it's at this time that we need to focus back on the good news on who Jesus is, on how Jesus lived and calls us to live. Not that none of those things matter anymore, but they start to lose a little significance in the face of Jesus. We have to remember to focus ourselves back on him. Finally, Peter was writing to explain a new view on the kingdom. You're going to find the the kingdom of God all throughout Mark, where Jesus saying the kingdom is like this, or Jesus telling his disciples, hey, here's how we live in the kingdom. And what you're going to find is that it takes everything we know about kingdom and turns it on its head. Peter was writing to people who lived in Rome, the seat of the kingdom, where the king Nero was. And and Peter's writing this to them because he needs to go watch how Jesus lives the kingdom. The kingdom at that point in time, power and authority were all about getting more power and authority for those that had power and authority. That's what kingdoms were. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, the strong get stronger, the weak get weaker. But Jesus comes in, turns the whole thing on his ear and goes, actually, power and authority is to be used for those that don't have any. And actually, those who lead in the kingdom are meant to be servants of all. This would have been revolutionary for the church in Rome. You mean everything we've seen our whole life is a lie? Jesus did it all backwards, and now, as we're suffering persecution and uncertainty and darkness, we're supposed to love and pray for our enemies? We're supposed to serve those that we don't benefit from? This would have changed everything for them, and it should change everything for us. So as we go through the book of Mark, I'm going to keep bringing back these themes. This is, this is who Jesus is. Even next week, Peter starts with the identity of Jesus spoken from God in heaven. He's trying to make it crystal clear. Do not forget who Jesus is. And now let's look at how he went about life. Let's look at what the kingdom on earth should look like. So this is where we're going to be going again. Today, this is all about background. But I want to lock these things away in your mind because, again, today we face uncertainty every single day. Should I even bring my kids to church? Is that a safe thing? Is that an okay thing? There's all kinds of uncertainty around. And if we lose sight of Jesus, we potentially miss it all. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says, and I'll use this to close. Hebrews 12 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's believed that the, the book of Hebrews was written in a very similar time to the, uh, the book of Mark. Again, the writer of Hebrews was looking at what was going on and the persecution that was coming, and he has the same message as Peter. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Look at how he handled suffering, persecution, uncertainty, and live the same way. Because if we miss that, we miss it all. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to close with a song, with a worship song called Tremble. And the, the, the chorus is pretty simple. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. If we will learn to focus on Jesus, there's nothing this world can throw at us, church. So let me pray. Father, I'm excited to see where you take us with this. God, as we focus on who you are, on how you brought the kingdom to this earth and how you're calling us to do likewise. There's going to be some challenges that we don't like. There's going to be some stories that we hear that, are, that just encourage our heart and everything in between. Lord, may we keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, that whatever this world throws at us, we can overcome. Not overcome by, by crushing our enemies, but overcome by persevering with faith trusting that you are the king seated on your throne. And if we will follow the ways of the king, then we will see the king lifted up. So be glorified in our church, God, as we go through this series. May you use this to make us more like you. May our faith grow. May our endurance grow. May our love for those even who are different from us, even those who persecute us, may our love for them grow as the kingdom moves forward. We love you, we thank you, and we look forward to what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.